0: Welcome to Eagle, the podcast. Welcome to episode nineteen. I'm Philippa Webb, and I'm joined here with Professors Depo Akande and Marco Milanovic. And our special guest for this episode is Professor Ona Hathaway, professor at Yale Law School. So, we're gathering here more than one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a grim anniversary. And we're going to be covering very recent developments and some big international law issues. I should mention at the outset that each of us has been advising Ukraine either directly or indirectly on some of the issues that we'll be discussing. So we will be speaking in our personal capacity only. So on the 17th of March, we had a big development. The pre-trial chamber of the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for President Putin and Maria lavova belova the Commissioner for Children's Rights in the office of the President. The crimes alleged concern deportation and transfer of children as war crimes. There's already been extensive discussion and reaction online, including posts on EGIL Talk. So turning first to Ona, what is the significance of this arrest warrant, in particular, the timing?
1: Well, I think the significance um, is twofold. I mean, so there's of course two individuals here that are that are um, subject to the arrest warrant. There's uh, Ms. Maria Lavova Belova, who you mentioned. Um, she's a relatively young member of the Russian government. She's the Commissioner for Children's Rights in the Office of the President of the Russian Federation. And I think the significance there is that um, the ICC is clearly trying to send a message to sort of lower-level members of the Russian government. Um to encourage them to think twice before participating in the war and um and participating in war crimes as part of the war effort um, then the significance of the of the arrest warrant against putin um i think is to signal that the i c c is going for the very top um that there's a that there's they're not going to be shy about trying to get the very highest level uh, members of the Russian government sending a signal to Russia um, that uh, that the entire government is potentially going to be held responsible. And I think it's also to really assert the relevance of the International Criminal Court and its ability to go after the person most responsible for this war. And that is, of course, Putin. It may also be that there is the timing. You asked about the timing. Why now? Um, so I think, first of all, you know, the ICC wants to show that it can move quickly and precipitously you know that it's not going to be sort of sitting around forever developing the evidence. I think that the uh, arrest warrant against Putin as well is perhaps partially aimed at trying to take some of the wind out of the sails of um, the move to try to create a special tribunal to try the crime of aggression in Ukraine. One of the key arguments for that tribunal is that, um, Putin is the person most responsible, and it may be difficult to connect him to particular war crimes. And this may be a partial answer to that set of concerns. So I think those are at least some of the some of the issues that that I see in this in this arrest
2: warrant. I think t- timing wise, it's also very interesting that that actually this arrest warrant comes out a few weeks after Putin on TV uh, essentially embraced this whole policy of taking children from Ukraine and having them adopted in Russia by Russian families. And Maria Belova actually herself adopted a child from Ukraine. So the whole thing sort of unfolded on everybody's screens. And in terms of evidence, like if you had to run a trial, all you have to do is play the video of that press conference and a couple of other things, and it's a slam dunk, right? So this is not a war crime where you need to do an enormous amount of hard work to connect the offenders to the offense right so th- that that's i think partly the explanation of it it's easy to mm. to justify to the court and to the public you know why they had to do it
0: are there echoes of what um the prosecutor the former prosecutor did uh with the lubanga case where it was a very narrow uh charge conscription of child soldiers in that case in order to i suppose have a strong case on the evidence and Uh, have, in in the end, it didn't work out this way, but have a fairly swift proceeding. On the one hand, you see the advantages in terms of messaging and efficiency, but in terms of the narrative of what, in particular, President Putin is accountable for, although these are very serious war crimes allegations, it it doesn't reflect uh, the true
1: accountability that uh, I'm sure Ukraine and others hope he will face. I think you're right about that. I mean, I think part of what's going on here, I suspect, is an effort to really um make a case that that no one could defend. You know, no no one is going to say that the taking these children from their homes and uh subjecting them to re-education is um is, you know, anything other than atrocious and horrific. Um, and, and here I want to give some credit to my colleagues at the Yale School of Public Health, the the group that put together a lot of the evidence um, that this conflict observatory report that was issued on February 14, 2023, really documents the kind of horrific, um, uh, you know, uh, really the war crimes that are being committed against these children in you know, the way in which thousands and, and probably more than they actually have specific documentation for. They particularly documented with extraordinary satellite imagery, um, uh, the existence of a number of camps of children um, being uh, taken from Ukraine and then relocated to Russia and subjected to this reeducation and sort of de-Ukrainianization really is extraordinary. So I think there's a way in which um, this kind of narrow focus is maybe meant to kind of start with the most compelling case and, the, and following on the issuing of this, pu- this public report to really kind of build public support for what the ICC is doing.
0: So the arrest warrant, apart from its temporal and significance and its significance for the ICC as an institution, also raises very challenging issues of international law beyond the charges. I agree with you, Ona, that uh, the charges are clear and the evidence appears to be very compelling. But more in terms of the procedure of the court and its place in the international legal framework, uh, as we know, there was a controversial appeals chamber judgment of the ICC Uh, that held in the context of charges against the then sitting president of Sudan, President al-Bashir, that there is, and I quote, neither state practice nor opinio juris that would support the existence of head of state immunity under under customary international law vis-a-vis an international court. That... Was a decision of the ICC Appeals Chamber, but it's provoked a lot of reactions, including I think from you, Dapo, on the blog. Uh, What's your take on how the Al Bashir judgment will hold up in respect of President Putin's immunity, ratione personae?
3: No, it's an interesting question. The whole question of you know immunities of heads of states before international. Tribunals, and I think it's important to be clear about what the issue is. The issue is not really about the immunities of heads of states before international tribunals. Full stop. The issue is about the immunity of the head of state of the head of a state that is not a party to the instrument that creates that international tribunal. That's what was at issue in Bashir, and that's exactly what's at issue here in the Putin case. For the ICC, the Appeals Chamber judgment is clear, and in fact it was um, unanimous for the ICC Appeals Chamber, saying doesn't matter whether you're a head of a state that is not a party to the statute of the ICC, there is no immunity under custom international law because this is an international tribunal. The other thing to think about is that actually the Bashir case had two aspects, which will also be relevant here, for Putin. It's not just about the immunity before the tribunal as such. What was really at issue in the Bashir case was whether or not the state's parties to the ICC were entitled then to arrest. And in fact, I think that was probably even more controversial than the finding that there was no immunity before the ICC itself. In Bashir, the court was saying that there is now no immunity, even at the domestic level, for state's that um, the ICC is asking to arrest. And, you know, I think those issues are probably not going to go away, even with respect to to Putin. I, You know, he may not travel anywhere where this issue will arise. He may not travel to an ICC state party. But if he did, it would not surprise me if those issues still rear their heads, if some states are still saying, we have obligations to Russia under customary international law and those obligations that we have to Russia, we can't dismiss because we have entered into a treaty, the ICC statute. So I think those issues might, might well arise, certainly at the domestic level. And as we know, the ICC statute has Article 98, and there'll be questions around what does Article 98, um, what does Article 98 mean. We'll see what the court decides. I'll be surprised if the court goes back on what it held in Bashir. But I'll also be surprised if all states take the view that the Bashir judgment simply resolves the question for them.
0: And I think Dapo, it it will well. There's there's great potential for it to be tested uh, because people have already been speculating that uh, Putin is scheduled to attend the BRICS summit in South Africa in August. And South Africa is a party to the ICC, at least at the moment. Um, It has, I think, recently introduced a bill that would end its membership of the ICC, but that doesn't have, well, it hasn't passed and it doesn't have immediate effect. And as we'll all remember, uh, al-Bashir did visit South Africa and uh, South African authorities did not arrest him, which led to proceedings before the ICC and as I understand it, uh, the appellate court in South Africa interpreted their ICC implementation legislation as denying all immunity in cases of international crimes, uh, whether or not there is a, an ICC arrest warrant. So on the one hand, you have quite a welcoming uh, environment uh, for testing this because of the past practice following the al-Bashir visit. Uh, At the same time, we have all of the issues that you raised, Dapo, as well as a movement in South Africa to leave the court.
2: I think it's interesting that Mr. Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, had many, many, many legal troubles of many different kinds (laughs) in recent months. And I would find it shocking if he actually decided to challenge the South African judiciary and invited Putin to a summit. Putin might attend via Zoom, but he's not going to come to South Africa.
1: I'll just add that I think what's so interesting about this case is, is, I mean, I think think that Dapo laid it out in the right way. I mean, I suspect the ICC states are going to accept the Bashir decision, um, uh, though I'm sure the issue will be raised. I think you're right about that. I mean, I think that all these issues have kind of, you know, the issue around the ICC uh, arrest warrant and then the talk about a special tribunal to try the crime of aggression, have kind of put on the table um, a set of questions that it's kind of shocking we haven't really addressed before, which is how extensive is personal immunity? In what cases does it have to be observed? When do international courts... Not to have to observe uh, personal immunity. Are there other inst- Are there any instances where a state has not consented um, to waive personal immunity where it does not apply? And I think, you know, we'll almost certainly, if these cases as these cases move forward, confront those issues and hopefully fill them out. My guess is that um, that the Bashir decision will hold at least with ICC state parties. The tricky thing will become if you know there are. Um, efforts to try and gain cooperation from non-ICC state parties in, in carrying out the arrest warrant or in extradition that, that I think would run into real problems. But, um, but I think one of the interesting, from an international legal perspective, one of the interesting things to see is that we're, we're delving into these issues in a kind of deep way that we've never really had to before. Um, and, you know, I suspect we're going to, to see a much more developed law around these questions in five to ten years, thanks to, thanks to these cases.
2: I mean, in terms of reactions by third states, I, two I find very striking. So one is that China immediately said that they expect other states to respect personal immunity. They expect the court to respect the personal immunities of heads of states. And the United States, through President Biden, sort of welcomed the warrant, which is sort of, what is the word? The height of chutzpah, right? Coming from a country that for such a long time opposed the idea that the court can have jurisdiction over non-state party nationals, let alone the heads of states of non-state parties. And I, I, I hope you saw also the parallel that the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is like playing this role of an uber hawk on Telegram, essentially said that Russia is going to bomb the ICC using hypersonic missiles, which I find very charming. But of course, then, of course, President Biden is welcoming the arrest warrant, and he is the head of state of a country which still has on its books a law that would authorize him to invade the Hague if an American service member was arrested by the court.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of irony here, I think, that we're seeing, and we're seeing kind of Obviously, the U.S. hasn't fully worked out its position with regard to the ICC, um, and I think it's it's absolutely clear that that the U.S. has suddenly discovered an enthusiasm for the ICC that that has been long buried. Um, I mean, obviously, the Trump administration really went after the International Criminal Court with with sanctions. The Bush administration, of course, pushing that so-called Hague Invasion Act. Um, uh, which has now been modified to allow for the U.S. to cooperate with the International Criminal Court in, in this particular instance of its investigation of the war in Ukraine, uh, so that it allows the U.S. to to provide evidence and support, which is actually relevant to this arrest warrant because the evidence that was collected by the group um, affiliated with the Yale School of Public Health um, has been working with the State Department, so some of the evidence the ICC will be getting presumably is going to be through the U.S. Uh, Department of State um, uh, from this group. So yeah, I mean, the U.S. Has, has, um, has vacillated and we see even vacillation happening right now with the Department of Defense declaring, you know, it's not going to provide any evidence or support to the ICC investigation. And yet, uh, Beth Van Skok, who's the um, ambassador on war crimes issues, you know, really showing a kind of effort to cooperate and collaborate with the ICC and the intelligence community, signaling a willingness to provide evidence and support to the to the war crimes prosecutions and and the rest of the prosecutions taking place in the court. Um, and many people pointing out the irony and um, hypocrisy of the United States. There's no doubt that that's true. I don't think that that should stop the US from. From providing support to the ICC, I mean the U.S. has vacillated back and forth in terms of its position towards the court. Um, and to my eye, this is this is a great development of the willingness of the U.S. to support the work of the court and not getting in the way of it, and even maybe, you know, help provide the evidence. Um, but yes, I mean it is a height of chutzpah. There's no there's no doubt about that.
3: Can I just say something about the charge? So Pip mentioned earlier the narrowness of the charge, and I think it's sort of unavoidable that when one looks at it, one says, look, this is horrible um, what this charge reflects, but it's still very narrow considering the the whole breadth of issues that are going on in, in Ukraine. And the narrowness will, I suspect, lead for some to continue to call for a possibility for, you know, an aggression tribunal so that the full breadth of what's going on is is captured. Um, But one interesting thing about this particular charge, it's about deportation of children from occupied territory, so protected persons under the fourth Geneva Convention. And this requires actually showing that this is taking people out of occupied territory and transferring them outside of that occupied territory. So it would actually require a finding that this is occupied territory. As we know, Russia claims that these bits of Ukraine are now parts of Russia. You know, we had the referenda that Russia held in these in these places, and Russia says this is now part of the, the territory of Russia. So despite the narrowness, one upside of this charge actually is that it requires the court to say something about the status of the occupied territories. Now you might recall that in the context of the situation in Palestine, the ICC already faced this issue. The ICC faced the issue of whether or not it can make a determination that bits of the occupied Palestinian territories are in fact that and not Israel, East Jerusalem and other places and there the court felt undeterred in being able to do this and you can imagine that it's tricky the court having to make these determinations if this was the international court of justice you'd be talking about monetary gold can it decide on you know the rights and obligations of non-party states in the palestine uh, not advisory opinion the palestine situation the icc has said we can do this and they will then have to do this here. And that will be significant, at least in having some judicial finding about the fact that, you know, no, Russia, you haven't legally incorporated these entities. They're still parts of Ukraine under your occupation.
2: In terms of judicial finding, though, uh, remember, they, of course, they don't try cases in absentia. They can, however, issue a decision on, confer- on the confirmation of charges in absentia. So. It is like, I mean, let's be straight. There is no way Putin is going to end up in The Hague unless he is toppled from power in Russia. It's just not going to happen otherwise. And of course, it's 99% likely that is not going to happen and he's going to finish his life in his palace, you know, living happily ever after. There is that 1% chance, but let's see, right? However, so that means there will never be a judgment in this case, almost certainly. However, there could be a decision on the confirmation of charges, even in the absence of the accused. And there, the pre-trial chamber could make that determination, that that you said, that this is actually Ukrainian territory and that the only plausible defense that the defendants could make, which is actually, no, 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 these are Russian children from Russian territory, simply couldn't apply.
3: That's a good point.
0: And in the bigger picture, some of the findings um, may be used eventually at the ICJ or the European Court of Human Rights, which also have cases looking at Russian conduct from different angles. And uh, there's speculation that the removal of children and the the elimination of their connection to their culture and their people may be a form of genocide. Uh, And there's also issues in the European court case about the status of territory, um, the amount of control that it's under. So we might see uh, some interesting judicial dialogue, uh, hopefully, all pointing towards accountability. (laughs) So we've been talking about uh, these, these charges, which are of war crimes against two people at the ICC. But of course, there's the bigger picture. And since October last year, there has been waves of attacks by Russian armed forces on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. And just recently, the Independent uh, International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine issued a report saying that this may amount to crimes against humanity and that there's been uh, entire regions and millions of people being left without electricity or heating during freezing temperatures. So that's from the perspective of uh, the UN Commission of Inquiry. But what about under international humanitarian law? Marco, what does that body of law tell us about the targeting of energy infrastructure and implications for the relationship between Russia and the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic uh, and for the status, for example, of prisoners of war in those
2: areas? Right, I mean, there's so actually, I mean, there's so many different issues of IHL, of course, that arise out of Ukraine, and and we and for, on, on Eagle Talk and Articles of War, for example, at West Point have published dozens of articles dealing with with so many different questions this, this last year. Um, one question is the classification of conflict, um, which is complex and and it relates essentially. It boils down to this this particular problem. You know, it is easy to say today that there's international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. However, this whole thing started in 2014, and the issue is when it began, whether the conflict between Ukraine and the separatist entities, the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics, was actually a non-international armed conflict running in parallel with uh, an international armed conflict with Russia, or rather were these entities at all times under some level of control by Russia to such an extent that the whole conflict essentially is one big international armed conflict. It is this latter position that is probably the the correct one. Um, As you pointed out, there are many, you know, many, many relevant decisions here. I would point to two. One is the the recent uh, admissibility decision before the European Court of Human Rights in the case brought by the Ukraine Netherlands versus Russia which contains an incredibly detailed analysis of the relationship essentially between Russia and the separatist entities that would satisfy even the most stringent attribution test, let alone the overall control test used for the purposes of internationalization by international criminal tribunals. Then there is a very interesting judgment uh, of a district court in The Hague in the MH17 case, which tried four defendants from the separatist region Regions uh, uh, convicting three, and acquitting one. In which essentially the Hague District Court said that Russia at all times exercised overall control over the separatists. So that's the conflict classification issue. Then when we come to war crimes, and you know, has have there been war crimes uh, in this conflict? I suppose that, that we need to make a careful distinction between two basic types of war crimes. One is the mistreatment of people in the power of the enemy. Yeah, so prisoners of war, civilians and so on, who are tortured or subjected to summary executions, and so on and so forth, mostly by Russian troops, but also in some situations, of course, by Ukrainians against Russian POWs. These are cases that are easy to prove, right? When you have a mass grave with people who are you know, where you can see ligature marks and you can see that they were executed while they were defenseless. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to, to, to you know, prove what happened. And the, 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 the basic crime base is not something... It's hard to document. I mean, there's so much documentation work to do, but the bottom line is not difficult to prove. What is exceptionally difficult to prove is that higher level commanders whether military or civilian, are criminally responsible for those offenses under some theory of liability. Indirect perpetration, co-perpetration, command responsibility, you know. Then there is the other big type of war crimes, and that's really conduct of hostilities issues. And the, the record of international criminal tribunals on this point has actually been very patchy. Very few people have been convicted of war crimes because they deliberately attacked civilians or they used indiscriminate weapons or they launched disproportionate attacks. The vast majority of convictions are actually for ill treatment of people in the power of the enemy. And that is actually a reflection of how IHL is structured. IHL is actually a very differential body of law that pays an enormous amount of respect to the judgments and and views and intentions of military commanders And even when you see, you know, devastated cities in Ukraine and the use of high value explosive, you can't infer simply from that, that these war crimes have been committed. I think, I mean, I I can park it here now, and then we can talk about civilian, the attacks on power infrastructure in particular. But I just wanted to clarify the distinction between these two different kinds kinds of war crimes and how the second type is much more difficult to prove.
1: Can can I jump in with a question um, here, Marco? That's so interesting, and I I find everything you just said really persuasive. I wonder, though, this this argument that you make that there's been very few um, war crime prosecutions for the second type, the sort of directly uh, targeting civilians or civilian infrastructure, how much is that due to the fact that we have not had... That many uh, war crimes uh, trials in cases involving an international armed conflict, um, the, the vast majority of the cases are for NIACs. and so you know that the issues, of course, are different. You know this is this is distinctive in some way, and that the post-war era has largely been one not entirely devoid of international armed conflict, but where international armed conflict is is. Um, certainly dwarfs, uh, is dwarfed in comparison to non-international armed conflict. And a lot of the uh, accountability has has sort of followed suit. Um, so how much is that, is this, might this be different because we're dealing with a international armed conflict and we all are watching on television every day, the sort of bombing of hospitals and, you know, apartment buildings. And, you know, those are some of the most horrific um, acts of the war. I mean, not obviously the, the tra- treatment of individuals is terrible, but but this is a case where maybe that the, this is an easier case to prove than than might have been in the past.
2: I think you're definitely right, Ona. Right, so that does explain, you know, why why the vast majority of prosecutions have been for mistreatment issues. Uh, it's also it's not just simply that there's international armed conflict. It's the international armed conflict between adversaries that are in some sense peers that use more classical. Means of fighting, you know. So, for example, these mass artillery fires, right? So this this incredible mass use of artillery and explosive weaponry in in urban areas. We've had that a bit in the former Yugoslavia, for example. You know, so Vukovar is is the the destruction of Vukovar is is one such example, but we have not had many. And so, for example, at the ICTY, the the one other. So th- there was the bombing of Dubrovnik, which was. You know a conduct hostilities issue, um, where there was a successful prosecution. The the really horrible, um, th- probably the most horrible case that tells you how difficult these cases are to prove, even if they're brought uh, uh, to trial, is the Gotovina case, which dealt with the shelling by Croatian forces of Serbian of, of Serbian inhabited cities in Croatia and the mass exodus of Serbs from Croatia, which which culminated in this. Uh, a very divided appeals chamber judgment.
3: I was just going to jump in there to to say that it's true that we haven't had many prosecutions with respect to international armed conflicts, but it's also the case that the ICTY, you know, went out of its way to say that the law in this regard is more or less the same in non-international armed conflicts as it is in international armed conflicts. This is one of the big things that they were suggesting in, um, in the Tadic case, and then they carried on through to other cases. And so part of it, actually, I think, is not about the difference in the law, because the I was trying to say the law is the same, even though this is a non, in some cases, could be a non-international armed conflict, the law is more or less the same. It, it may be about the parties themselves, you know, the type of fighting that we that we see, but I think it's also ultimately about what Marco was saying. It, it has something to do with the nature of the rules, whether it's rules in international armed conflict or rules in non-international armed conflict. They require the tribunal to, to go into places where it's actually very difficult for third parties to, to, to judge and to assess. Even the very basic question of whether or not a particular objective is a military objective or a civilian object We can't answer that question just by looking at the building, because it could be, even though it's a residential building, you know, there are circumstances where, as we know, it could still be a military objective. And so it's just very hard for tribunals to actually make that judgment unless they really have the facts and the evidence. And then of course, once we get to issues around proportionality, indiscriminate attacks, it makes it even more difficult. To make those judgments unlike as Marco was saying, in case of of treatment of persons who are under the um the power of 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 the enemy
0: following up on that point dapo uh, Marco isn't it arguable that at least from the Russian perspective, suspending disbelief for a moment, that these energy uh infrastructure targets could be characterized as at least mixed military and civilian
2: use? Yes, it is. And that's why at the very beginning of these waves of attacks by Russia at, that sort of started you know, in the autumn, um, at the very beginning of these attacks by Russia uh, against Ukrainian energy infrastructure, you could not conclusively say that these were violations of IHL, let alone that they were war crimes. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to be clear, first of all, about the, the basic targeting rule here, right? So the targeting rule, the principle of distinction, articles 51 and 52 of Protocol 1, which are regarded as reflecting customary law, you know, the, the, the basic idea is that civilian objects cannot be made an object of attack. And moreover, that it is prohibited to commit acts or threats of violence, the primary purpose of which is to spread terror among the civilian population, right? Now, the question is, how do you prove that there's a primary purpose of spreading terror? Because (laughs) civilians will get terrified from being involved in that type of conflict. And then, of course, the next rule is the definition of a military objective, right? So that has, as you know, two prongs. So a military objective is an object which, by its nature, location, purpose, or use, makes an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, and neutralization offers a definite military advantage, right? So power infrastructure traditionally has been considered as potentially being a military objective. And numerous militaries in numerous circumstances did target power infrastructure. So you know, the clearest example would be a power plant that supplies a munitions factory. Yeah. So that, you know, produces artillery shells. Yeah. You know, that you, you can cut off the power supply of that of that factory or that supplies some kind of, you know, command and control center of the military. Yes, you can attack the power supply of that uh, 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 of those military assets. Uh, you know, I lived through one such example. So in 1999, when NATO bombed Belgrade and Serbia, you know, there was this whole wave of, of strikes where NATO used these, and by NATO I actually mean the United States, used these carbon filament uh, munitions that short-circuited uh, um, uh, the, 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 the power cables and, and sort of would, would knock out electricity you know, in in big parts of the country for hours at a time. Yeah. What they didn't do then, even though they did do it before, in many conflicts, was attack power stations. So the generator stations. Yeah. So long story short, we can't tell from a single attack against a power facility that that's ipso facto a civilian object, that it's not a military objective. What we can say, however, is that after many months of this, And looking at the vast scale of the attacks on Ukrainian power infrastructure, that when you look at the satellite image of Ukraine in the night during the winter, there was no lights in Ukraine. What I think that shows us is that it is highly unlikely that all of that power infrastructure was being attacked because it's applied concrete military targets. Rather, what we can infer is that the attacks were deliberately targeting civilians for the primary purpose of terrorizing them, for the primary purpose of making them suffer in winter without power, without heating, without water, because the water pumps can't work. You know, that is what this was. But but I hope you can tell, right, that simply attacking a power plant or a power distribution center in and of itself is not proof of attacking a civilian object.
1: Just one thing I want to um, jump in here on. This strikes me, um, what you say, Marco, as an as issue that's going to come up again and again when it comes to accountability for the war in Ukraine, and that is the question of intent. Um, so what what was the intention? Is the intention to make lives miserable for civilians, or is the intention to... You know, it was a primary purpose to uh, to affect um, a military object. And here, I think part of what's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out is the degree to which um, those countries that have access to intelligence are going to share that with the ICC. Um, and whatever other accountability mechanisms, perhaps trials within Ukraine as well. So this is why I think it's so important that the United States actually participate and support the the efforts at the ICC, because without that, it's going to be very difficult to prove a lot of these cases. And just to bring us back to the opening conversation about the arrest warrant against, uh, that was just recently issued by the ICC, it may be that that's part of the reason they started there. Um, is that they don't require necessarily that insider evidence. Although, again, um, they're not relying on intelligence, but they are re- relying, at least in part, on satellite data that was collected uh, by a group working with the State Department. So ultimately, having access to some of this information and having U.S. participation, I think it's going to be essential to being able to prove these cases, and particularly where intent is is key, as it will be, I think, in many of the in many of the cases that are going to go forward.
2: I think that's exactly right, and uh, a good point of comparison here is actually precisely the MH17 uh, case, uh, um, both before the the Hague District Court and the litigation we've had in the European Court of Human Rights, because there was actually an enormous amount of intercept evidence about the downing of the plane and the communication of these various people. Who were involved? Um, it's sometimes you—you you know how in general in criminal law we have to praise every god there ever was that criminals are generally stupid because otherwise we would not be able to get them. You know the same sort of applies here. I mean, as you know, in the initial stages of the invasion, the Russian communications uh, game was very, very, very poor, and it meant that. They were often communicating using unencrypted channels, using, you know, uh, regular mobile phones. So certainly in the early stages of the conflict, I am sure that Western intelligence agencies and Ukraine have an enormous amount of intercept data. Whether that's the case today, though, or for conduct hostilities issues in the past few months, I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they certainly have it for the, for the early stages of the war.
0: So we've been talking about routes to accountability, whether it's individual accountability or uh, accountability uh, on the international level and for violations on, as, as Marco said, rightly, a vast scale. Well, the next step after accountability is reparation, compensation, restitution of some kind. Ukraine estimates that there's been a trillion U.S. dollars worth of damage inflicted to date. Usually that would seem to be a completely unachievable level of compensation and, and it may well still prove to, to be hard to meet. But a distinctive feature of this situation is that the Russian central bank has $300 billion worth worth of assets in foreign currency reserves uh, around the world in countries like the UK, the US, uh, France and Germany that have been frozen uh, in the days after the invasion. There are of course also the assets of oligarchs and other entities that might be contributing to the war effort. But let's focus in our discussion now on the state assets and, and we come to another type of immunity Uh, different from what we discussed in the context of the arrest warrant. Here, we're talking about immunity from enforcement. As we know, in 2012, in the jurisdictional immunities judgment, the ICJ explained that immunity from enforcement is a high bar and that you can't take a measure of constraint as a domestic court against state property unless it falls into very narrow exceptions, the most relevant of which is where the property is in use for commercial purposes. Well, central bank assets don't tend to be in use for commercial purposes. And in any event, uh, states tend to give very high protection to central bank assets. In the UK, our legislation deems them to be immune from enforcement And in the US, for example, they are immune if they're used for central banking purposes, which uh, can be broadly interpreted. So how do we then move from freezing, which has been done of these assets, to seizing them to compensate Ukraine and its people for uh, the enormous damage and suffering that has been inflicted? Well, there's all kinds of Uh, initiatives underway, there's all kinds of theories being uh, put forward and creative thinking. I'm just going to explain briefly three approaches that have been uh, suggested and then uh, open it up to, to views. So one approach for overcoming immunity from enforcement for Russian state assets is to do it through a purely executive process. Because the law of state immunity, so the argument goes, only applies when you have the exercise of judicial power. So if you keep it at the executive or legislative uh, level, then that's a way of avoiding uh, the uh, bar set by immunity. Now, of course, there may be other bars that come into play, but immunity uh, would not be relevant. The second approach is an exception approach. And that could be an exception for the enforcement of international judgments, which I think is arguable under customary international law, or it could be an exception uh, for aggression or uh, the kind of atrocities that have been committed. And that's been the finding, I think, of some Ukrainian courts. The third approach is justification, where you might violate international law through confiscating uh, state assets, but there's a circumstance precluding wrongfulness that applies. That might be self defense, or it might be a countermeasure uh, trying to bring Russia into compliance with its obligation to provide reparation. There's very little state practice on all of these approaches, but as with everything we've discussed, we are in new territory. And as Ona said, uh, the next five to 10 years may reshape international law in this area. What do we think about approaches to from moving from freezing to seizing and giving Ukraine a chance of reparation?
3: It's really interesting on, on the first approach that you talked about. So the uh, the one that says, look, if you do it through executive action or even possibly through legislative action, the law of state immunity doesn't apply at all. Now, that might sound counterintuitive. People might say, how could it possibly not? You know, that would seem to be a greater interference with a foreign state than if it's done through a judicial process. But actually, when you look at national legislation and when you look at the relevant treaties, whether it's the European Convention on State Immunity or the UN Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities, you will see that with respect to immunity from enforcement, they apply to acts that are done in connection with judicial proceedings. That's just the way in which they are stated. Having said that though, one question that arises is in the jurisdiction immunities case, which Philippa referred to, the ICJ said these immunities are derived from sovereign equality. That's the basis. Both it, the immunity from jurisdiction and also immunity from execution. And and so one might argue that, look, if sovereign equality says you are immune, if you do it through your judicial processes, it would appear to be the case, or one might argue that sovereign equality would still provide for the same immunity, even if you do it through uh, executive or judicial action. I think that's one argument that one needs to think about. On the countermeasures um, approach, so you'd accept that there is an immunity, but then you'd say, look, what we're doing here is we're responding to Russia's violations. I think there are two things that would come into play here. Number one, you'd have to accept that states that are not directly injured, in other words, states other than Ukraine, are entitled to take countermeasures. And that's something which the ILC articles on state responsibility do not pronounce on but where I think, at least in terms of the academic literature and the, you know, the views of some, we are at a stage where these so-called third-party countermeasures are, are permissible. But states would have to come out and actually say that they would have to come out and express a view that we are doing this, even though we're not directly injured, because Russia's violations are violations of obligations erga omnes. And I think that that's where international law is today. The second potential obstacle, though, that you would then need to cross is one that's relating to countermeasures itself. In principle, countermeasures need to be reversible. And you might say, well, if you seize Russian assets, how is this reversible? Obviously, freezing is reversible. How is seizing reversible? So there, I think it would depend on what kind of assets we are talking about. Insofar as we are talking about cash or things that are similar to cash, then in principle, actually, it is always reversible because if I take your £10 and I say, I'm taking your £10 because you owe me £10, if you pay back the £10, I can always return to you the first £10 I took. That's always reversible. And I think that's the position that we are in in relation to these Russian assets. So I actually don't think reversibility is a huge challenge, except reversibility would be a challenge where we go after assets other than cash. If you're seizing buildings, if you're seizing yachts, if you're seizing things which, you know, and then selling them and giving them away, and then using the money to pay compensation, those would be things that would not in principle be reversible. And what this means, actually, in terms of thinking about the reversibility is that when you take these countermeasures, the relevant obligation that you are trying to ensure that Russia complies with is not primarily, actually, the violations of IHL and human rights and the USAD bellum, because those are violations which have already occurred. The relevant obligation that you're trying to ensure that Russia complies with is the obligation to make reparation. That is the violation that you're trying to induce compliance with. And if Russia were to comply, miracle of miracles then you just give them their money back. So I, I actually think that that's quite a plausible route to go down, but it requires states being willing to acknowledge, you know, we can take countermeasures and that's what we're doing in this instance.
0: What would you say, Dapo, to the temporary requirement? Because it's interesting in the ILC commentary on countermeasures that it says that they must be temporary and then reversible as far as possible. And the reverse as far as possible appears to apply to the as far as possible uh, phrase. So a, a bit of flexibility there, and I take your point on the the cash. But if you actually seize something and distribute it, can you in good faith say that this is a temporary measure?
3: Well, I think, it's, I think you can say it insofar as you say that what we're doing is we're doing it until Russia fulfills its obligations to make reparation, right? So we take Russia's 300 billion or whatever it is, and if Russia, you know, if it pays the compensation that it owes, well, there you have it. There's your 300 billion back, Russia. So in that sense, as long as we are clear in our minds that this is directed at Russia's obligation to make reparation, then I think you can say that it's... I see the temporariness, I may be wrong, but I see the temporariness as being similar to the reversibility argument. Can I do a quick thought
2: experiment slash question? So imagine we had an advisory opinion before the ICJ on this topic, like the current ICJ. Of the 15 judges, if you were a betting man or woman, How many would you say would embrace the theory, no, just, you know, this is not an immunity question if it's done through legislative or executive action. How many would embrace the collective countermeasures point in one way or another? And how many would say, you can't do this stuff?
3: (laughs) Oh, boy, that's quite...
0: You go first, Mark. No, I'm not going first. I'm
3: not going first. (laughs) So let 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 me try.
0: I think it would be a nuclear weapons... Casting vote <laughs> scenario.
3: Let, let me have a go because I think the argument that says, you know, it's not, um, there's no immunity because it's not judicial. I think judges will struggle with that one, given what they said in jurisdictional immunities. I think they'll struggle. Having said that it's based on sovereign equality, I think it's then hard to say, well, but it doesn't apply if you do it through your executive. So I don't think that would be very popular with um, ICJ judges. Um, The countermeasures sort of argument, that's a difficult one because in the very first place, I think the the, the greatest difficulty with the countermeasures one is even states themselves don't want to say that they're taking countermeasures because you're immediately on the back foot. You're acknowledging that you're doing something which is unlawful. So that's You know, that's the problem um, with a countermeasures um, argument. But I think in this scenario, as in the Russia... Let me just put it this way. If I think about the the provisional measures order (laughs) in Ukraine-Russia Genocide Convention case um, and how willing the judges were to go along with the orders that they made then... I wouldn't rule out also a countermeasures argument in in this type of scenario.
1: Uh, if I may, I'd like to just jump in on this point. I mean, I think I'm with you all the way, Dapo, until I get to the reversibility point. Um, and it strikes me as difficult to make the claim that if you start dispersing funds, even if you maintain the principal, but you disperse the earnings, that it is fully reversible because you know, of course, the value of that three hundred billion is 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 declining over time. Um, if you're if you're you know spending out uh, the the earnings from that, from it, and, and in a way, you're you're you you are seizing it. I mean, you're you're taking it and, and not fully reversing the entire value of the asset. If you're returning an amount that you know you return three hundred billion in five years, that's not the same thing as three hundred billion today. Um, so that's where I struggle. I'm with you on some of the difficult points, I and mean, I'm with you. I, I think you're right about the first point about um, I, don't, I don't find entirely possible to claim that the, that the sovereign immunity claims only apply to judicial action. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. I think I'm with you on what I think you're struggling with, but I actually think there's plenty of evidence for the idea of, of collective countermeasures for Ergo obligations, but I, um, I think where I run into trouble is where, uh, where we're talking about reversibility. And that's why I would think probably the more likely way forward um, is that countermeasure will be, countermeasures will continue to be used as a basis for continued freezing of assets. Um, even after the war comes to a close on the claim that you made, which is this idea that um, countermeasures can be put in place for the failure to pay reparations, and that that will be sort of essentially held and, unless and until Russia um, provides reparations. But the downside of that approach is, I think, um, that you know, in the meantime, those assets are not going to be able to be used for for Ukrainian rebuilding. At least that's where I am in terms of looking at where the law is. Um, and you know, although I, I can see the argument that Ukraine is trying to make, I just don't, I don't, I don't think the court's going to see that as fully reversible, even if the three hundred billion dollars is preserved.
3: Can I just come back on this issue of the value of of the money? And I think this is a really good point, actually. Um, I was discussing this with somebody and I have, you know, who who made a, a similar point about what about the, the value of the money. But on the other side as well, by which I mean on the side of the reparations, that is also something which typically actually you would also say you need to think about the interest as well. Right. So it's not just on the Russian side, where you say, well, if you take $300 billion today, that $300 billion today is not the same as returning $300 billion in five years' time. On the side of the victim, it's also the same thing. If you owe $300 billion today, that's not $300 billion in five years' time either. So if we're just talking about the appreciation of the value of the money, that actually applies on both sides, both on the side of the assets and on the side of the victim who's due compensation. So I, I would still argue that it, it comes out in the wash.
0: Back to Marco's thought experiment, we missed one of the approaches. So we we talked about the avoidance approach using the executive or the legislature and how that may not gain much support. We've talked about countermeasures, justification. But the other approach I put forward is one I think that would appeal to the court, which is an exception for enforcement of international judgments. And I think there is a basis in customary international law that immunity from enforcement doesn't apply to the enforcement of international judgments where that court had jurisdiction over the foreign state. And we are in that scenario uh, with the European Court of Human Rights case between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, At the time, Russia was a member of the convention, a party to the convention. Uh, And the court, the ICJ will, uh, I'm sure, deal with Russia's preliminary objections in uh, the genocide case at the court. Now, that's... A narrow exception. I think it goes back to Corfu Channel and monetary gold and practice around uh, the Albanian share in that gold. Uh, But there isn't practice going the other way to dispute it. So, sparse though it is, I think it is quite compelling and it would be something that appeals to an international court. The downside of it is that you have to wait for the international judgment to come out. And uh, the both the European Court and the ICJ are not known for issuing $300 billion or $1 trillion damages awards. Uh, but it's something to wait and see.
1: I would agree with that. Um, just a really quick point to add. I mean, I think there are other downsides. One other downside is that it does encourage a kind of uh, rush to the courts. Um, and you wouldn't, you know, they're, they're, by any count, the assets that are being frozen are not going to match the harm that's being done. Um, And so you want to be careful that it's not just the first person to file or the first cases to go forward or the ones that get compensated and everything behind it doesn't. And the second problem is that at least the cases that currently exist are are, uh, and that are likely to, to take place in the International Criminal Court are for war crimes, crimes against humanity and potentially genocide. None of that gets to the crime of aggression. Um, and much of the damage that's done is a re- result of the illegal war, um, which is not necessarily captured in those crimes. Um, and so while I agree with everything you've just said, I think it's not, uh, not going to be an adequate answer to the, to the demand that the Ukrainians are making, which is that, you know, really they deserve compensation for this illegal war, which has really devastated the country and it's going to take decades to recover from.
0: So we've been discussing very complex legal issues and I feel like we're only scratching the surface of uh, the legal issues raised by um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, it's It's been a fascinating conversation. I think these issues will keep evolving and I think it's also important for us always to remember that while we may analyze uh, the legal words here and there, uh, it's ultimately going to be a question of political will. And just on the compensation point, Canada has passed legislation uh, that would allow the government to confiscate uh, Russian property on the territory. A private member's bill is tabled in the UK House of Commons that uh, would require Uh, the UK to lay before Parliament a bill for the seizure of Russian state assets for the purpose of offering support to Ukraine and Ukrainian people. So it may be that the political outstrips the legal and the practice will evolve. Thank you so much for joining us, Ona. Thank you to Marco and Dapo as well.
1: Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun.
2: thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.